0: You're listening to Blackpool Church Podcast. Join us for our Sunday gatherings to make friends, explore faith and encounter God. Visit our website, blackpool.church This is the Talk Archive. In my job, I get to meet a lot of different couples who are hoping to get married. And I think, I'm probably biased, but I think there's no better place in Blackpool to get married than on St John's Square and in our wonderful church building. As you leave and the the wind is blowing, so the confetti really works outside of our building, biodegradable, of course, and there are tourists going by, cheering and clapping and all sorts of things. And so it's no surprise That inevitably, quite a lot of couples get in touch to say, could we be married in your building with your church? And what happens when they do that is that they fill in a little form on our website. They get an automated email reminding them to find some documents that they're going to need. And there's a link and they can click it. And then they book a meeting with the vicar. What could be worse than that? And uh, they come along. And uh, what happens is, Uh, I like to take the opportunity to tell them a little bit about Jesus and about a Christian vision for marriage. And we all know that in that situation, they basically just have to smile and nod. And so they're just, they're sitting ducks, basically. There's nothing, there's nothing they can do. Um, And so, yeah, I I take the opportunity. And um, I have a little pitch, which I give people. And my pitch is that I say to couples, like, um, all the people that you're talking to about your wedding, they're only interested in you for one day, which is your wedding day. So the, the person making the cake, assuming it's not a family member, the person making the cake or the person doing the dress or the hotel or the band or whatever it is, they're interested in you for one day, just your wedding, and then they don't care anymore. But as a church, we are really interested in your wedding, but we're much more interested in your marriage want to be a church that invests in your marriage. And so I open up some of the promises that they're going to make to one another when they get married. And you'll probably know some of these promises kind of well. I take you to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part, according to God's holy law in the presence of God, I make this vow. And I explain to couples how serious, actually, lots of these promises are. What a level of commitment is involved in making these promises. But I also try to encourage them that it might be that the best thing that they can do with their lives is to make that kind of serious promise, offering to one another so much of themselves. And as they sit there, some sort of think, thinking like, why, why on earth would offering yourself to somebody else be the most important thing, the most valuable thing you could do? That's sort of the question that I want us to think about today. I think God offers each of us, whether we're married or not, he offers each of us the possibility of a relationship like that. A covenant relationship is what the Bible calls it, a relationship of of promises where we can offer to God the whole of ourselves. And we might be thinking, why on earth would offering God the whole of ourselves be the best thing that we could possibly do? So let's jump in. Uh, The reading is from Exodus 19. It's verse one to 12. And I'll read it for us. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, On that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The first thing that I want us to think about is the context of the covenant, the context of this promise. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at an encounter in Exodus at the burning bush. Hopefully that's familiar to you if you've been here. Thinking about this moment where God encounters, uh, Moses encounters God and an instruction to go to Pharaoh. And we've skipped on about 16 chapters or something like that and probably a year or so, I'm guessing, at this time. And quite a lot has happened in between those two events. So Moses has gone to Pharaoh and he's insisted that Pharaoh lets the people go. Pharaoh's refused. And so plagues have come upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And eventually it's got too much for Pharaoh. And so he said, right, just get out, just go. And the people have fled. And um, then as they've left, the Egyptians have changed their minds. And so they've chased again after these people. And they've found themselves in this horrendous situation where in front of them is a sea stretching out for miles and behind them is the Egyptian army and they're completely trapped and surrounded and independence and just desperation. They cry out to God and he miraculously rescues them. He parts the water, they pass through and their enemies are swept away. And they find themselves in the desert having having been rescued, but asking like, what's next? For us, Lord, what do you have for us? And in our passage, Moses, the leader of God's people, has gone up this mountain to try and talk to God and to understand what's next. But before God gives him a promise and tells him, he reminds him of the context, like he reminds him of what's sort of gone before. If you were really, really paying attention a few weeks ago, which I'm sure you all were then you'll remember that as Moses meets God at the burning bush, God says, there'll be a sign for you. And the sign is that once you come out of Egypt, you'll be back here worshiping me on this mountain. Here we are, we're back here. That's where we are in the story. And so God starts his promise like this. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. There's a really crucial point here, which is that long before Israel are faithful or unfaithful, long before they live in obedience or failure, God has already saved them. He's already rescued them. So like, were the people obedient to God in Egypt? I don't know. I've no idea. They might have been. They might not have been. That's sort of the point, that God is willing to rescue his people before they live in obedience. And here's the point for us. When we come to offer Jesus our lives, what we discover is that he's already done it for us. When we come to offer Jesus our lives, we discover he's already done it for us. If this were a race, God is getting gold. If it's a competition, he wins. In our passage, God is willing to save these people before they're obedient and he'll do the same for you. He'll offer a way in which you can be saved from death like these people before you get anything right or wrong. It means that before you fail, God has already made a way for forgiveness. Before you think about disowning him, he has already made a way for you to be part of his family. Before you wonder whether you can live up to his standards in your own strength, he has already proved that he is stronger than death. He can do it. That's what this is about. That's what this promise is. The context of this promise is that God loves his people and he's willing to do the work before they can prove whether they're up to it or not. What that means is that it's for everybody a life of covenant with God is for everybody. Even if you're thinking, I'll probably screw this up before I find the hairdryer to dry my hair after being baptised. Like even if you're thinking that early, I'm going to make a mess of this. God is still wanting a relationship of covenant, of promise with you because he's already made a solution. And so we might think, does that mean it's sort of meaningless then? Does that mean if God's already sort of like not worried about our failures or something like that, then it's all sort of irrelevant whether we live up to our promise or not. Well, I don't think so. And so the second thing that I want to look at is what happens when we break a relationship of promise with God? Before um, getting into the church, I was studying computer science and in computer science, there are all sorts of different little acronyms and phrases that nobody ever knows about in the normal world. Um, but there are a couple that occasionally trickle through, and uh, one that you might have heard is the word ift. Has anyone heard of that? Ift. So few nods. <laughs> it's just a wasteland of shaking heads. Okay, I guess not. So ift is spelt I F T T T. Any recognition now? Still none. IFTTT stands for if this, then that. And it's a method of solving problems and programming things following a particular pattern. If this, then that. For instance, if my phone leaves my house, then turn the heating down, right? That would be like a good sort of solution. If Google says it's going to snow, then turn the heating up. If you ate cookies before, then pick up your crumbs. If you come to church, then remember to give. These are random examples. <laughs> and the promise that God suggests to his people is an if promise. It's an if-this-then-that promise. He says, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Uh, but that begs that there must be a sort of flip side to that, right? What if you don't? Where's the if not, or the else, as the computer scientists would call it? Uh, well, there are passages like that, and they are super intense. Let me read to you from Exodus 30, uh, Deuteronomy 30 and Exodus 20. But if your heart turn, turns away and you are not obedient... I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. In Exodus 20, it's it's even more intense, I think. Uh, It says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And as you hear that, you might be thinking, what on earth is that about? I thought we were supposed to be talking about a God of of love, a kind and compassionate God. How on earth could that be something that he would say? Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Well, let's have a little bit of a think about that. We're not afraid of the Bible, so we can do some thinking about that. The first thing I think that we can recognize is that actually it can't be exact, saying exactly what it looks like. It looks like it's saying, if my great-granddad robs a bank, then I've got it coming to me, right? But I don't think it can be that. Moses, speaking just a few chapters later in Deuteronomy 24, he says this, parents are not to be punished for their children, nor children punished for their parents. Each will pay for their own sin. Hmm. So that's interesting, right? And then in Jeremiah, God is speaking again and, and, and Jeremiah speaks to the Lord and he says, you show love to thousands but you bring punishment for the parents into the laps of their children. Then he adds this, you reward each person according to their conduct as their deeds deserve. So it can't be quite as simple as it looks on the surface. I think instead, partly, this is about consequences. Next week, John is going to be speaking on the Ten Commandments, and they are some unbelievably brilliant bits of advice wise and useful teachings on all sorts of different aspects of life. And because they're good advice and not just random tests to see if you'll live up to the standard, then if we don't do them, then there are consequences. And sometimes those consequences will impact on our families. We all know that that's true, right? If a couple of parents decide that they're going to get into scamming people for money or something, then that might catch up with them. And if it does, then they might go to jail and their children might go into the care system or something. And that will impact their lives massively from generation to generation. I think it's interesting that God says it's the third and fourth generation because they're the living ones, right? They're, They're the living generations that are there to be impacted by the consequences of people's mistakes. I think also, potentially, this is about character traits. Um, I have quite a similar-looking nose to my dad. It's got a sort of lump here. Uh, But the reason we have similar-looking noses is because we were both stupid enough to break our noses when we were about 12. And uh, that's because I've adopted a character trait of my dad's, which is being a bit of an idiot, right? And we see the same thing happening in families as well that occasionally we pick up some of the failings of our parents. And so we experience the punishment or the consequences for our parents' mistakes. And what this passage is telling us is that just because your parents had a hard time over it actually doesn't mean we'll get away with it. It might impact us as well. God is saying here we fare from generation to generation. But here's the key point, I think, about punishment is that it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not fun to be punished, is it? No one likes to be punished, I hope. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. If I got into trouble when I was a kid, then my parents might punish me for it. And if I was with loads of other random kids, they wouldn't punish them. Because they don't have a relationship of love for them, but they'll punish me because they want me to change. They want me to learn and grow as a person, to not make the same mistakes again and again and again. And so they choose punishment as a gift, effectively, for me. And this passage says that actually there's the same thing happening in our relationship with God. He is willing to punish, actually. And that might be uncomfortable, but it's not necessarily bad. The final thing I want to say is that it's not the last word. The punishment isn't the last word. That scary passage I read to you before from Exodus 20, uh, it actually finishes like this. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me. And keep my commands. If you imagine a set of scales of God's character, it's like judgment is this enormous, heavy item in God's character, important and significant, but it is dwarfed by the weight of his mercy. He is so hungry and keen to be merciful that he will show mercy to a thousand generations. Just think of a thousand generations. As James, the half brother of Jesus, put it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so the last little thing that I want us to look at then is what happens if we do keep our promise? What happens if we do choose to live lives that are obedient to the things that God asks us to do? We did it. You can relax. I'm not going to talk about punishing children anymore. It's okay. In the passage God says that there are three things which are on offer for his people when they choose to live in a relationship with him. He says, now, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasure possession. That's the first thing. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The phrase treasure possession is a legal phrase. It means like some, stuff that a king would keep locked away to show how important and rich they are. The closest thing we have to it is the crown jewels, right? And so God is saying that if you choose to live in a relationship of obedience and promise with him, you become to him like the crown jewels, something precious and significant, something with value and importance, not a random like, coincidence of atoms, but something incredibly precious and valuable. He also says that you'll be a kingdom of priests. That doesn't mean like a land of vicars. That would be terrible. A kingdom of priests is much better than that. A a priest is just somebody who helps other people encounter God. And he says, you can be like that if you live in, in obedience. You can be somebody who other people encounter God through. So when they're sort of lost thinking, surely there's more to life than this. You can be somebody who they encounter God through in your workplace or your school or your family or your community or whatever it is. That's what you're called to be. The last thing is a holy nation. We've talked a lot about holiness. It basically means different but good. No more sort of keeping our heads down, settling in, hoping that nobody notices us. No, there's more that the church is called to. A holy nation, a distinctive and different thing so people can look at your lives and think, oh my goodness, I wasn't expecting that and I want some of it. Jesus' uh, friends, Peter, decided to take this passage to talk about the church. And so hear these words sort of spoken over you as we wrap up. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you would not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. At the start, I sort of asked us like the question of why on earth would we want to give our lives away? To somebody else? Why would we want to give our lives to God? I think there's three reasons. The first is the context. It's that he loves you and he's made a way for you to be rescued long before you kept up your end of the bargain. The second thing is that it gives us discipline actually when we need it and structure and if necessary then punishment as a gift to help us grow and flourish. The third thing is that God has called you to make a difference in the place that you have been planted so that other people can come to know Jesus through you. And so as we finish, let me ask you, have you accepted the freedom that comes from Jesus and the new life on offering him? What areas of your life need correction? Even punishment? Where have you been called to help other people encounter Jesus? Amen.